Puget Sand. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode two. Yes, we made it to episode two. You know, it's like uh, they say the second election in a new democracy is the most important. Well, a second episode is the most important for us. And here we are. We've made it to episode two of Vintage Sand. I'm Josh Cabot with my buddies John Meyer and Mike Edmund. And uh, we are presenting our second episode, as we said the in the first one, not as uh, film professionals in any way, not as professional critics or filmmakers, just uh, film lovers kind of gone a little haywire. And uh, we hope uh, every uh, episode to share a particular focus and passion that we have on film with you, our merry band of listeners. So our episode today is going to focus on what we think is an unjustly overlooked period of filmmaking. When you think of film in the early 60s, your mind immediately goes to Europe and possibly to Japan. Um, and, you know, the, you think about the work that was going on. I mean, my God, if you were a filmmaker in those, uh, if you were a, a film viewer in those days, you know, one week it would be a Godard premiering, and then the next week it would be a Bergman, and then a Polanski, and then a Kurosawa, and then Black it was Orpheus. was a phenomenal period. Just an incredible period. And, you know, when you think about American movies in those days, you kind of draw a blank, unless you're a big fan of Mary Poppins or The Sound of Music. But American movies, it was a phenomenal period also. Uh, and it, that's it, it, and we're that's going through great change. Yep, and that's what we're here to argue because we are going to talk about specifically um, a period in American film from roughly about ten years. I mark it roughly at the beginning. Uh, in 1957 with uh, The Sweet Smell of Success, although that was directed by a Brit technically, and ending with a film that's 1966 uh, with the same cinematographer, James Wong Howe. And this sort of... The great James Wong The great James Wong Howe, who just just celebrated his 100th birthday wherever he is. Um, It's a period of black and white filmmaking that is almost... The word I'm going to use later on is eidetic. It's almost realer than real. The blacks and whites are so sharp and so beautiful that um, we felt that this period deserved another look. Um, These films all feature really interesting, deep focused, very high contrast, black and white, um, and... Where it's interesting that we're, as we did last episode on Hitchcock, we're all going to focus on a different director this time, actually. Um, and uh, three very different directors working in the black and white of that day in America in the early 60s. Uh, and interesting that Michael's going to talk about a director who was just sort of reaching the last great peak of many peaks of his career. I'm going to be talking about a director who was sort of more typical of the period, who had his great moment from, say, 62 to 66, and then sort of disappeared into the ether. But like so many of the interesting young directors, Directors in that period, like Sidney Lumet, like Arthur Penn, had gotten their start in television, which I think is very critical. And John's going to talk about a director who uh, was just at the beginning of his uh, fame and moving on into color and much greater things, but um, in this period did a couple of really beautiful um, black and white films. And, you know, so we're going to throw in some references to things that. Uh, are tough to love films like Mickey One. Have you guys seen Mickey yes, One? Yes, I've seen Mickey yes, One. I it's have an, not. It's an odd movie. I um, want to. It's it's interesting. It's really really interesting. Visually, it's it's very rich. Um, 
A little I, tough to but follow. I, but I, I, this brings up something, though, that I had a very hard time deciding who I really wanted to talk about because Arthur Penn is someone that I think was very important in this period, as was Sidney Lumet. And their careers started out in a way like John Frank Murray that came from TV. Right. Um, Sidney Lumet, I mean, became like a filmmaking machine. He just came, I mean... One after another. One after another. Yeah. Just, I mean, constantly until the end of his career, I think over 50 movies, yeah. whereas Penn, um, of that period, uh, The Miracle Worker is a beautiful movie. Absolutely. Beautiful yes. movie. Uh, and then he made Bonnie and Clyde in 67, moved on to color, which is considered now a landmark movie, but he didn't make that many movies. I, I have a big place in my heart for night moves. Uh, I do too. Which, I do which, too. Is which I finally saw. Finally. Yes, yeah. good man, yeah, Michael. I, Very good. I, and I, I also I movie. love Little Big Man. That's it's a great movie. But yep. yes, I like Night Moves a lot. It's not very well known. And in my in our honorable mention. Uh, category. I think we have to talk about Otto Preminger too. Oh, absolutely! I, I just yeah. saw uh, Anatomy of a Murder on, which I love. Right? Yeah. I absolutely love that. Yeah. Movie. I mean, still. I mean, yeah. okay. Hasn't dated at all. No. I'm, well, I mean, you know, it was so scandalous that someone said panties. That's, that's but, right. <laughs> you know, that's right. uh, and I think if James Stewart had retired after that movie, but he would have. Ah, uh, you know, I'm a Liberty Valance person, <laughs> oh, though. So, geez. well, that's the other thing that's really interesting <laughs> about this period, where you had like the younger directors starting to really sort of break out and make really interesting new movies but the so-called Hollywood royalty directors were still working some of them not really making really good movies some I mean Wilder was and that's still where we're headed with movies. Michael yep and John Ford was still still working managed at Liberty Hawks Dallas. was and Hitchcock. Hawks was still working mm -hmm. but the, the movies weren't as good as Wilder. what had done before Hitchcock was still working Wilder was still working mm -hmm. George Cukor was still working uh, I mean it's pretty amazing yeah, no, it was an amazing... And, and I'm going to throw one more Preminger in there, which is one of my closet favorite films of all time, which is Bunny Lake is Missing. Which, Interesting film. Oh, my God. Talk yeah. about a film that... I mean, I went okay. to see that at the film forum, and I'd never seen it before. And it's, it's actually... I think one of the best performances Lawrence Olivier's ever given. Absolutely, because he's so calm. He's and, not doing all, <laughs> right, he's the, all not, the shtick that he was exactly. doing. Exactly. Although, you know, I have to admit that I like In Harm's Way. It's a guilty yes. pleasure. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's that bad a movie. And I think it's, once again, John Wayne gives a good performance when he yeah. had a director who, you know, yeah. would tamp him down or would, would do whatever, he, you know, what Hawks and Ford would do with him. Right. And so, so it's this really, as, as John and Michael said, it's this really interesting convergence of the old and the new, of an audience raised on television, of the boomers starting to come of age, and while clearly the sexy action is going on with, you know, with Fellini and Godard and Truffaut and, and the British filmmakers of the period and, and people like that, and I'm going to throw Roman Polanski in there too. Um, we are going to make the case for this interesting, very brief period of beautiful black and white in American film. So we're going to build on what John said and start with a director who, you know, of one of the greatest of the old school directors, that would be Billy Wilder. And Michael's going to take us through some of those films. Yeah, well, Billy Wilder is, is my hero. I actually sat next to next to him at a restaurant, not next to him at an adjoining table. And my dad said it was the only time I ever 
looked excited over seeing a celebrity <laughs> in my life. Huh. He was there with uh, right. three couples, Bob Newhart, Ed McMahon, and their wives. I, all I could do was just look at Wilder, and I just wanted to go and say something to him. Of course, I didn't. But uh, Wilder, uh, Wild, uh, Billy Wilder, he uh, made 25 movies he directed, plus two films that I don't count. One is an old German film he did in the 30s, which he did under a different right. name. Mention yeah. I'm Sontag. The people on Sunday, yeah, which was nice. It was kind of like man with a movie uh, camera, kind it? of. I have it. Oh, yeah, wow. I've never seen it. It's interesting. It's like an abstract, pure cinema kind of piece. It's and cool. then, and then the um, uh, documentary he made during World War II, which is a short. But of the twenty-five films, I've seen twenty-three of them. And he did a film in France, didn't he, in the thirties? I don't think so. Bad Seed or something like that. I don't think it was listed. He might have because on the way out, on the way out, trying to get out of Germany and everything. And what's also really interesting, uh, because there were so many directors getting out, Wilder is the one who immediately adopted to. Oh, absolutely. He, he loved yeah. the United States. Some of the other directors that came from Germany had a very hard time changing and everything. With the language. And and, language yeah. and, you know, homesickness and that whole thing. But and Wilder, the fact that, you know, like seven years after he got here, he co-wrote Ball of Fire, yeah, which right. is one of the great comedies about language, about yes. the English yeah. language and, yes. the, you know, the glories yeah. of... God, I love that movie. He didn't direct it, but... Uh, yeah. yeah, Howard Hawks. Love that movie. But out of, of the 25 films that he's directed, I've seen all but two, uh, Five Graves to Cairo, and um, yeah, I saw that one with Stroheim. That's all right. Eh. And the Emperor Waltz. That's the other one. I, I have not never saw that. that. No, I don't think anybody has. I don't think even Turner Classic has it in their library. But of the twenty-three films I've seen, I strongly feel that all but five of them are definitely worthwhile at least one viewing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have five films. That's a bold statement. That is a very bold statement. Yeah. <laughs> And I can even mention the five films of his that I don't particularly like. Go for uh, like. it. It's their, um, and two of them is mo- his most popular. Uh-oh. Irma LaDuce. Oh, agreed. And um, the uh, Seven Year Inch. Oh, totally. Double, double agreed, John. Yeah. Well, it's Seven Year Inch, I like. It's, I, okay, it's, it's okay. It's, but it's, it's not. Fun. It's, 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 it's you know. really kind of a dated play, and I feel yeah. that it was dated even... Because yeah, I finally I, watched it. When I watch it now, I don't think of it as a Billy Wilder movie. No, that's it. And, and I don't love Love in the Afternoon or, uh, See, or Spirit of St. Louis. Spirit of St. Spirit Louis, St. Louis is definitely... I think he did Spirit of St. Louis. By gunpoint. So did he, so did he do something else. <laughs> yeah, it must have been. It must because it's not a Billy Wilder movie Not at, at all. all. But then, you know, after that great run in the 40s, then he yeah. hits his stride again. Well, I just saw Witness for the Prosecution was on mm-hmm. the other... Which How do you fun. like me now, ducky? <laughs> Which is brilliant. And, and, into the... so, and as John and I, who have worked on that play in acting class, it's far superior to the play. Yes, it is. Not surprising. Yes, it is. There's no nurse, for instance, in, yeah. the, in the original play. And then just into that incredible trilogy of mm-hmm. Some Like It Hot the Apartment and, right. uh, and One, Two, Three. And his other two movies that I don't care for are his later works, uh, The Front Page, which I oh. thought he massacred. Absolutely. Yeah. And his last movie, The uh, Buddy Buddy, Oof. which is sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... So, but you don't hate The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes? No. One of my good. I love that good. movie. I finally saw that at the BAM. And I think uh, I, I understand. In his get, cut or? I don't, I think it was, yeah, it was, it was his cut. I, I think as much as, as he could, there was some footage I think that's gone forever of that. I, I don't know. I know he fought bitterly with United Artists. 
over that one. Why? I don't know. Well, oh, well, it was three hours long, three and hours. there were no oh, stars. Oh, and oh, like, uh, oh, oh. Apparently, he wanted Peter Sellers originally for Sherlock Holmes. And, uh, I don't see that. You know. Yeah. I don't see but that. I like uh, Robert Stevens, Robert Stevens. And I like Colin Blakely. I yeah. think it's a lovely but they were, film. But they weren't, they weren't big stars at all. I know it opened at Radio City Music Hall and bombed there. Mm. And uh, it, it was it was very sad. But all his other films, I think, are worth at least a look. I recently saw in Turner Classic a movie that I'd been avoiding for years, The Major and the Minor, which is hilarious. It's hilarious. It's a little uncomfortable. But oh, well. Yeah, there's a few moments. Yeah, yes, I, I it's agree. not a hashtag me too favorite. But, yeah, uh, but come on. <laughs> I, I, when I originally heard the plot line, which for all our listeners yeah. who don't know, it's about a... Uh, 20-some-year-old woman who gets on a train and uh, only has a few dollars to her name, and she decides that she um, is going to go as a child. (laughs) Where do we begin? Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Michael. Your 45 minutes is up. (laughs) We'll we'll pick this up again next week. Thank you. (laughs) But I I was, and I'm not a huge, huge fan of Jim. Wilder's version of Lolita. (laughs) But it wasn't. Nice fit. It wasn't. It was funny. And I, I, I don't, I didn't find it really offensive at all. I don't. No, I don't find it people. offensive. But there's, there's definitely moments you kind of go. <laughs> I love a Foreign Affair. I think that's oh, an unru- un- 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 underrated film. Yeah. Wonderful movie. Well, yeah. he got a screenplay nomination for that one. As well, he should have. But anyway, the four I'm going to talk about is sixty to sixty-six. Uh, the first one is the apartment. And if anybody listening to this um, program has not seen the apartment, go out and rent it. It, it is really, it, it's a movie, to my estimation, gets better on every viewing. And I, I watched it especially for this program. I have a copy of it. Um, apparently, Wilder wanted to, had, wanted, had the idea, the germ of the idea, to do it in the 40s. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. When he saw Brief Encounter. Hmm. He, the scene where Trevor Howard and Cecilia Johnson are about to have their affair and then the fellow whose apartment it is comes in right uh, yeah he yeah. wanted to know about that fellow that guy yeah that's that yeah. sounds that sounds perfect and, and but of course you know that's it, definitely a writer's mind yes yeah and um and that was the germ of it and he had been battling you know thinking about it for years and you know with the censors you know the whole idea of yeah. having illicit affairs but by the time 1960, you know, yeah, they were able to do they it. were able to do it. Uh, you do know that Fred McMurray is not the first choice. No, and of course, uh, he, I'm sure he hated well, playing Paul the Douglas role. Was wasn't he? Paul Douglas, and he had a, a massive heart attack. Yeah. Apparently, uh, Fred McMurray said that there were people who, who accosted him on the street afterwards for doing that for playing such I'm, a I'm, horrible person. I'm well, sure I they, always I heard this. I heard a story that. Uh, a lady took her kids to go see the apartment when it came out because Fred McMurray was in it, and oh, no. at the time Whoops. he was doing My Three Sons on TV and doing Disney movies. She didn't know, understand what it was about, and she was very upset. Well, there's some there's some people who should not be mothers. No, but I mean, you know, casting him against type in that, and also, of course, in Double Indemnity. Yeah, too. I mean, to, that that to me is the perfect example of where casting against right. type works. Brilliantly. Brilliantly. Absolutely. But anyway, um, Apartment, for those people who don't know it, it's it's about a um, 
business climber. He's climbing um, the business uh, track. And in order to do this, he lends out his apartment key to four senior associates for illicit affairs. This is in the day before um, credit cards and, (laughs) you know, and uh, hotel rooms. And um, he has a crush on the elevator girl played brilliantly. I think it's her best performance by Shirley MacLaine. I would I think no I would agree with that. I think yeah. she yep. is so, so good in this. Completely charming, adorable. Yeah. And he's got a crush on her, but little does he know that uh, she's having an affair with the HR person right. who now is giving him, uh, Jack Lemon his uh, his promotion and but wants the key to the apartment. Yeah. And it just, it, it, it's actually... It's been called one of the great comedies. I, 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 I don't. Yeah, I, I call it a comedy. It, there's humor in it, but it's. It's I, very, I agree. I think very. It's, bleak. Some like it hot as a comedy. Yeah. This yeah. is a little different. This one yeah. is bleak. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's very hard to call. There's it a, a scene where Lemon finds out that uh, McLean is having an affair with her, his boss, and uh, Christmas Eve he goes into this bar and the look on his face. Yeah. The sad, devastated. devastated look, and in this horrible, sleazy bar on Christmas Eve. For some reason, Film Forum shows it on Christmas week a lot, and I think that's kind of a sick. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> or New Year's, which is you know, <laughs> even better. But, well, they had that film has me at the opening. You're talking about just the 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 look of it because it rips off one of my favorite shots in all of film from King Vitor's The Crowd. You know, the opening with going up yes. into the building into yeah. the window and that mm-hmm. endless, yeah. endless yeah. series yeah, of deaths. deaths. Right, yeah. which was a lovely tribute to that movie, and um, I, I that that hooked me on it before we even meet any of the characters. Yes, and uh, excellent, ca- you know, characterizations uh, by in smaller parts: Ray Walston, David White from People Don't Remember That, Larry Tate from Bewitched. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's right. And um, uh, Willard Waterman, Edie Adams plays a scorned secretary, Great. which is the one loophole in the film, I think. I, I find it hard to believe that a boss would keep his ex yeah, as a secretary. I, 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 would, I think I would agree with that. That's yeah. the one. Like, uh, Unless she was blackmailing him. Yeah, and then he, he, he winds it's, up firing her, and she goes right out and talks, tells the wife. Yeah. So that's that's my one little problem with Fifty the Shades of Black and White. Yeah, well. <laughs> but, uh, and it's... Beautifully shot. And who's I forget the the actor that plays the doctor. Oh, Jack Crushton. Oh, yeah. He also got an Oscar nomination for it. He's great. Yeah, Um, a regular Max the Knife. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's just it's the wonderful score of uh, Adolf Deutsch. I think did the score. I I guess the uh, theme from the apartment was a big. Like yeah, hit. It was a big hit. yeah, the, the yeah. music and the and the movie itself, of course, won the best picture of the year. Yep, and um, deservedly so. I would have given best director to Alfred Hitchcock for Psycho, but that's just my yeah. Hitchcock was not nominated often, though. He no, but that was one of the few times he was nominated. Yeah. Yes, yeah, but but I and I also think Wilder. They wanted to salute Wilder because Some Like It Hot was such a hit the year before. Yeah, and I will say. And I'll beat up, beat up anybody who doesn't agree with me. <laughs> Some like it hot is the funniest movie ever made. I, I think it's the best comedy. It's, I if you gotta find it hard just, to argue with. Mm-hmm. If you gotta pick just one, I yeah. think the thing that's really I always think of that that's amazing about Some Like It Hot is that I, I've probably seen it fifty times. Mm-hmm. 
I can say the lines before the actors say them. And that's all of them, not just Lemon yeah. and Curtis. And they still laugh. I know. That's why we all agree we're the same blood type, yeah. type O. <laughs> but I'm going on to my second film. I'm going on to my second film after The Apartment, which is, I think... Wait, you've got, we've got to talk about the last line. It's one of the great last lines of all time. Shut up and deal. Shut up and deal. Yes. <laughs> that is true. Yes, is. Although, you come away from that film thinking, do these two people really stand a chance? Because she's a pretty neurotic woman. Yes. You wonder. You, you kind of wonder. Which is another reason why it's... I wouldn't call, I wouldn't it, a call it a comedy. I wouldn't... Yeah. It, it, yeah. Even the happy ending. I mean, yeah. you know. It's, it's a bittersweet happy ending. You know? the, it's, yeah. Heavy on the bitter. Yeah. And yeah. the other thing, it's not from a play, but it was such a popular film, and yet I think 85% of that movie takes place in those two rooms. Yeah. Right, and doesn't feel claustrophobic. And it doesn't feel or, claustrophobic in yeah. movies. Yeah. You know, there's a few scenes in the office and one in a uh, couple in the restaurant. <laughs> the that's apartment it. is made to look so dreary. Yes. Too. <laughs> I mean, the other night, uh, Grand Hotel was on uh, Turner Classic Movies. And <laughs> that I part is funny. <laughs> where he's watching Grand Hotel by himself oh, while TV, eating a TV, TV dinner. dinner. Right. Oh. And all I could think about instead of Grand Hotel was about the apartment. <laughs> So that's that's a that's a great movie. <laughs> the second one I want to talk about I think is maybe not quite as funny as some like it hot, but I would I'd say it's probably Wilder's maybe second funniest comedy, and that's one, two, three. Bravo! Uh, yeah, I would I would agree. And this was not a hit. This this movie lost money. It um, it was not that popular. But uh, and it was because you know during the filming of it that's when the it happens it takes place in Germany Coca Cola salesman James Cagney wants to climb up the ladder and he gets stuck with the boss's daughter who decides to marry a communist and have his baby and it's too it, it comes from a, a one act play from Frederick Molnar a Hungarian play sure doesn't seem like a play at all though no <laughs> and. Um, it's just, it's so ridiculous, but it is so funny, and it is one of the, it, it, like Howard Hawks, it's one of those things where every line, it just goes zip, fast, fast, right, Well, fast. it's comedy as machine gun fire. Machine yes. gun. Yes, and Cagney's your perfect And Cagney is perfect yeah. for it, although, yeah. from what I understand, he and Wilder hated each other. Yeah, but well, Cagney retired after that film. Yeah. <laughs> that was enough. <laughs> Yeah. Well, had, was he thinking about retiring before that and Wilder? I don't first? know. I, uh, Probably. I don't know. I, got, I have a Well, and there were also stories about Horse Buckles trying to upstage him. And, right. you know, Cagney's like, who's this little rat? Yeah, and, yeah. you know. But it works for the movie. It, yeah. told, it Right. And I'm sure Wilder encouraged it because yes. it worked in the film. And you have Pamela Tiffin, who didn't go on to uh, better and brighter things, unfortunately. Made beach movies, but she's very funny. As the as right. the Southern girl, yeah. Arlene Francis from What's My Line, she's great in it. Yeah, she wonderful. Plays, yeah. Uh, Cagney's put upon wife, and yeah. she's funny. In she it. calls him Mein Führer all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mein Führer. Well, Wilder loved to poke fun at Germany, and because yep. he really, you know, he lost his family. I think he said once that he had, well, that he made it like his mission to always make fun of, yeah. fun of Hitler. Yeah. Him and Mel Brooks. Yeah. But uh, if, if it ever comes on Channel 13 shows it occasionally uh, and Turner Classic Movies, you can rent it. 
I believe they have a, had a new print because I know Film uh, Form had it like about five, six years ago. But it, it, to me, it's, my parents always loved it. And usually when your parents sit you down and say, hey, watch this, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. You want to kill yourself yeah. halfway through. I do but, know some people who do not like it. I, but it's the it's a miracle because it's so, you saying before, <coughs> it's so topical. It's so July 1961 and the walls yeah. going up. And yet I, I still laugh at it even, you know, you, you cannot it's get the references. Works. It's still funny. Yeah, it still works. And also a pretty bad supporting cast. I mean, you know, what's, what's her name who played uh, the uh, oh, Frau Ingeborg? The, the, uh, I forget Oh, Lilo Pulver. Lilo Pulver. Yeah, and, you know, not a great cast, no, but... But it, 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 as I say, it just works. Red Buttons has a wonderful cameo. Yeah. Right, he's... As, as a as Marine. The, right, and then he uh, and he does Cagney, He imitates right? Cagney. <laughs> oh, okay, Buster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and once again, awesome. black and white, um, Panavision... Beautifully, beautifully shot, and it, it, I, I can't imagine this movie in color. Did Wilder have this use the same director of photography in those days? You know, I'm not sure. Right. I'm not sure. I know he used the same art director, and this is when he started using Andre Previn, I think, for music. But I forget about the photographer. And he brings back the th- three Russian guys from Nanochka. Yes. Which is awesome. Which is, of course, is yeah. his own. Who he calls Hart Schaffner and Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> it's another one of my favorites. Frankly, I think, it's, I think it's a funnier movie than Nanochka. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. I, I, I have some problems with Nanochka. I would agree. I mean, I know he worshipped Lubitsch, and Lubitsch yeah, did a beautiful yeah. job with Nanochka, yeah, but it's not, um, it just doesn't hold up as well. Not really, no. Okay, the... Third movie I'm going to talk about is a movie that was pretty much hated by everybody. Oh, I know where you're going. And this is Kiss Me Stupid. Yeah. And yeah, I'm sure you're one of them. Uh, all I can say is you can see it on YouTube in its entirety. <laughs> in, in its entirety. I think it's a better movie than people give it credit for. Um, it once again comes from a foreign play, an Italian play, that apparently was done as a movie in the early 50s with Gina Lola Brigida. Oh, I did. Yeah, I did not know that. Called The uh, Dazzling Hour. And uh, this one concerns uh, uh, a sleazy nightclub performer named Dino, played <laughs> by Dean Martin. And I think this was the first time, to my knowledge, I don't know, maybe you can correct me, where somebody so parodied himself. No, I mean, I just think about, you know, Jerry Lewis doing his Dean Martin, yeah. you know, as Buddy Love in The in the Nutty Professor, but yeah, not parodying himself. Parodying himself. Yeah. Ever since I've seen that this film, and I only saw it a few years he's ago, I, I've had a soft spot for Dean Martin, anybody oh. who could parody himself. Yeah. I think he's great. And the opening of the film is Dean Martin doing this sleazy nightclub act, which was apparently really his act. And so anyway, Dean Martin is having affairs with all these showgirls. He's bolting out of Vegas, and he's driving away uh, to do something in Hollywood, and there's a roadblock, so he winds up in Climax, Nevada. Subtle, but effective. (laughs) Where uh, uh, That's a line that could have been in Dr. Strangelove. Exactly. Where he... um, this is such a fella could have a good time in Vegas with all that. <laughs> this is such a difficult plot to describe, but and it's very very convoluted. But he uh, something goes wrong. Well, actually, he stops for gas. Uh, the uh, Cliff Osman, who's already been in one uh, Wilder movie, Irma Deuce, less said the better. Uh, yeah, no argument. 
Um, Cliff Osmond plays his gas station attendant. He recognizes Dean Martin. He's written, he and his, and his writing partner have written this song. And they, it, it's their goal to um, get it produced. And he thinks if Dean Martin sings it on television, it'll happen. So gas station attendant fools around with the car. He says, oh my God, there's something wrong with your car. Uh, we have to, uh, you know, call away for uh, the right parts. It's a foreign car. Stay the night. And so he st come have dinner with, with my partner and me. His partner is Ray Walston. That's a whole other story. Uh, who plays a piano teacher who is insanely jealous. His wife is Felicia Farr, Jack Lemmon's real wife. Right. So they concoct this plan to get Kim no to get um, Dean Martin to seduce his wife, but they switch wives. <laughs> they switch. They get rid of Felicia Farr. They uh, Ray Walson starts a um, fight with her. She runs out, and they go to the local whorehouse or the local speakeasy, whatever you want to call it. They get Polly. Was oh, I don't know. Polly the. Uh, I can't think Kim of it. Novak. Polly the yeah, pistol. It was Polly the Pistol. That was her I just name. remember it was Kim Novak. That's yeah. And Kim Novak, who frankly I think it's the, it's the best performance she's ever given. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't forget Vertigo. He's, he's out of the podcast. You're out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I agree with Hitchcock a little bit. Although I love Vert Vertigo. is my favorite movie of all time. Never mind. I, I like Kim Novak in this movie. Oh, I do too. Yeah. Oh, totally. I like her in Bell, Book, and Candle too, but you know... Not Madeline that one, Judy. That one I, I have a, fine, a hard time, Bell Book and Candle, because I hear her and Stuart. Oh, and it's yeah, just, I know. It's <laughs> like, no. You were very apt pupil. <laughs> no, no. This your hair. This, this doesn't work. But anyway, no. uh, so more complications arise, and Dean Martin winds up sleeping with his real wife, and she gives him the song, and he sings it. And that's the last line of the film is Kiss Me Stupid. Now, the problem with the movie is the central performance by Ray Walston. Okay. He was a replacement for Peter Sellers, who apparently was hysterical in the film. Okay? From what I understand, Dean Martin couldn't stop laughing on the set. But he had a major heart attack. Making Strange Love, right? Strange love? No, he uh, during Str well, I'll tell you what happened. Isn't it right? Isn't that why he didn't play uh, Slim Pickens's part? No, it's because when he was getting into the cockpit of the set, he sprained his ankle. Oh, and so was the truth just, revealed. Yeah, Strange Love was before uh, Kiss Me Stupid. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was making so many movies that you know that was Pink yeah, there was that period. Shot was, in the Dark, World of Harry, yeah. Henry Orient. Yeah, and my God, he was working. But apparently, um, anyway, they were going to hold it for him, and he just went back to England to convalesce, and then he spoke out against Wilder in the film. Uh, it created a lot of bad feelings. So they get Ray Walton. It was originally he wanted Jack Lemmon for that part, mm. but Lemmon had all sorts of commitments. Right. So they got Ray Walston, and unfortunately, Ray Walston's just a disaster in the mm. part. He's, he's like a cartoon character, but it's not funny. And I like Ray Walston, but he was just wrong for the part, and he throws the movie out of, really out of See, balance. For, for me, it's like, it's like the equivalent of, I think, what Marnie, or certainly Torn Curtain, is to Hitchcock. It's the moment when the, the, 
the bad feeling, in this case, the acid wit of Wilder, gets too acidic and never quite bounces back. It's like where Hitchcock's murderous you know, restraint that he sort of kept under wraps is allowed full bloom, like the murder scene in Torn Curtain or, and, and, or the, the violence in um, Frenzy. Frenzy. And, and yeah. just it, that it's almost though the, the, the falling away of the code and of censorship in the mid to late 60s was actually not a good thing for Wilder or for Hitchcock or some of those older directors. But I actually, I actually think that Kiss Me Stupid is a pretty moral movie when you get down to it. I'll give it another, uh, on your recommendation, I will Just give it another look. Just look at look. it on, online. I don't have a copy of it, but uh, it's on uh, YouTube. I watched it, I thought, when I re- realized it I was going to... It turns up every once in a while. Once in a while, Turner Classic Movies has it. Yeah. Uh, once again, uh, Andre Previn did the music. Um, Widescreen uh, cinematography. It looks good. There are little bits. Mel Blanc has a bit part in it. He plays a, a dentist. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget who else is. There's other people just kind of show us up. But it, 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 I think it's one of his most underrated movie b- movies because it was so wildly hated at the time. He also made the mistake of releasing it at Christmas. <laughs> it's not a Christmas movie. <laughs> no. Even though it takes place around Christmas. but um, Like The Apartment. Like it's The Apartment. The fourth movie I'm going to talk about is The Fortune Cookie. Yes. And now this one, this is the first Wilder movie I've ever, I ever saw mm. at the theater. Uh, I was about 11, 12. I loved it then. I don't love it as much now. I, I still think it's, it's one of his worthwhile movies, mainly because of one performance, and that's Walter Matthau. Who, Whiplash who, Willie. Whiplash Willie, who won the Oscar... And it actually really did make his career. That's an example yeah. of where the Oscar yeah. made someone from a character actor into a uh, leading man, Walter Matthau. <laughs> but uh, and apparently, originally they wanted Sinatra for that role. Really? <laughs> Which I think would have been a disaster. Yeah, I don't see that at all. No, no. But uh, for those people who don't know, the fortune cookie, Jack Lemmon plays a cameraman, football cameraman for the. Uh, Cleveland, um, I was going to say Browns. Cleveland Browns. Browns. Cleveland Browns. The sports ball team. And uh, gets uh, tackled uh, uh, by, uh, I don't know my football terms. It's the running back. He's running back. He's the running back. He runs out of bounds. He runs runs right into Jack Lemmon. Runs into Jack Lemmon. Who's the the cameraman. He falls and uh, he doesn't, there's nothing really wrong with him, but uh, because of a childhood injury, his brother-in-law thinks this is a way of making money, of uh, bilking the insurance company and the Cleveland Browns. Right. It's, unfortunately, it's one of the most misogynist movies that... Uh, there's that. I mean, uh, Lemon only agrees to do this when he thinks his ex-wife might come back to him, his yeah. ex-wife, who walked yeah. out on him with a, she's a singer, does commercials. This woman, played by an actress named Judy West, I never saw her again. Huh? It's just one of the most unappealing people I've ever seen, and I don't know if it's the way she acted it, or the way uh, Wilder and I.L. Diamond wrote it. And it's, it's, and it's hard to really like Lemon in it, because you, you want to say to him, you're a decent guy. What do you see in this woman? And it, it, it gets very, very creepy. 
also the guy, the um, linebacker who tackles him becomes uh, Lemon's friend and is becomes almost his fairy godfather. Yeah. And that relationship kind of sours too. And it's almost while they're trying to be really, you know, liberal with race relations, it doesn't work. It's just it's it it was a successful film. Yes. And as you say, Matthew got the got, it got the, the Academy Award. It's it's Wilder's last um, um, Oscar nomination for screenplay, but it doesn't hold up except for Matthew, and it, it's because whatever he's on, he's it, I, I don't know if he wrote his own lines. I don't think so. Wilder isn't that that type. You know, yeah. Wilder, Wilder, Wilder they wanted Wilder to rev- uh, to uh, direct the Yacht Couple. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah. he just. But he wanted to mess around with the screenplay, and it was a Neil Simon's contract right, yeah. that it couldn't be. So that's right. while it just took a pass. Right. So anyway, but the, and that's also the last 1966. That's the last uh, black and white. His film. last black and white. It's pretty much the last end of Hollywood doing black and white. That well, was the last year that the Academy yep. had uh, categories for cinematography. That's right. right. I was going to mention and that. costume design. And somehow James Wong Howe did not win Haskell Wexler won for Virginia Woolf. Who's afraid of it? Well, yeah, well, I mean, the cinematography yes, yeah. is beautiful. Is so yes. great. So that brings up something that's very interesting because there were several movies made during that period that were great screen versions of plays. Mm-hmm. That uh, the Miracle Worker, right. yes. Long Days During Tonight, right. City Limit, mm-hmm. and Raisin in the Sun. Yes, is wonderful. Yes. I just I just taught it to my uh, my seniors few weeks ago um, and it, they, it, they loved it they yeah. loved it uh, and a moment for Ruby Dee's passing so uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah great but, movie and also the only I mean I think there are only two I'm English teacher speaking two really great American movies made out of great American novels and one's from that period too and that's Mockingbird Yes. yes. The other being yeah. Yeah. Grapes of Wrath, of course, but that's Mockingbird, another episode. Mockingbird is great, and it, it hasn't dated at all. No. I'm dreading. I, I'm not going. I'm <laughs> you heard about the play. Yeah, Jeff Daniels, written by Aaron Sorkin. Adapted, but but you heard about the worst part about it. Uh-oh, what? Uh, the kids are not being played by kids. No. Yeah, they're being played by adults. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Even though the whole thing is about the perspective of a young girl who yeah. worships her father. Yeah, okay, but I'm sure point. I'm sure they know what they're doing. I don't think they do. <laughs> I think I have to invest in that one now. <laughs> I want to be one of the eighty-five thousand people who rush up on stage, you know, because they gave him ten bucks. But uh, thank you. I now own fifty-two percent of To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> That's how Whoopi Goldberg became an egot. That's oh, that's how she won. Yeah, yeah she was one of the producers of um, Thoroughly Modern Millie. I wouldn't scream too loud about that. Although no. we do love Sutton Foster, but we're drifting into yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> we're drifting away. So, and it's interesting that you mentioned Frank Sinatra because I will use that as a bridge into the director that I'm going to talk about, which is uh, just a just a really odd and interesting career, and that's John Frankenheimer. Um, Frankenheimer was. One of the most, if not maybe behind Lamette, the most successful uh, director of those great American dramas, you know, in the 50s on those shows written by people like Rod Serling and Patty Chayefsky, and um, came to film. And I I maintain that the reason he is so good in black and white is because that's what he did for television and understood the lighting. And I think Lumet and and maybe even Penn brought that with them as well. Um, He did... did, um, 
All Fall Down, which I think is a great film, and Birdman of Alcatraz, which is, you know, a, a fantastic performance from uh, Burt Lancaster. I'm also not... I'm not going to talk about those, and I'm also not going to talk about The Train. I happen to like The Train. I like The Train. I like The Train, too, and the photography in The Train is amazing. Right. Amazing. But it's it's sort of like talking about, you're going to talk about Kubrick, and I don't know if I would talk about Spartacus, you know, in talking about Kubrick, because, no, it's because, no, but because he took it over from another director, or Arthur Penn was supposed to direct, and then... There were differences, and Frankenheimer. It's not really a Frankenheimer film, start to the finish. Train, yeah. So the train. Oh, right. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah Arthur Penn uh-huh. started, and then he. Um, I, th- I. I don't know exactly. Did he get fired? I think he got fired. I think there yeah. were creative. He was going over budget, or there were creative uh, and he issues. And did the chase. Well, that was later. <laughs> that was the the following year. Was it the following? Yeah. Year? yeah. Well, whatever. And well, the chase is fun. Chase is fun. It's one of my favorite bad movies, but yeah. it is bad. And Brando is very good in it. He though. is. And then with, with Frankenheimer, then you get to once you get past '66 with Grand Prix, which you know, if you like auto racing, I suppose it's interesting. But that was the beginning he, of the end. I don't know why he did that. I think was, he liked racing. I think he was, was just a fan. Was, I was wondering if it was just because he got offered a lot of money and figured, well, I if thought. I do this and he can do something else. I don't know because it's such an unFrankenheimer type movie when you see it. Right, I, and and then he started doing these really bad literary adaptations. Oh, and, and, I, I disagree. I think the Iceman cometh. It's quite good. It's it's it has I, no need to be a movie, but no. Well, well, it's interesting. The Frankenheimer film, I think, from the seventies and eighties, that gets overlooked is "I Walk the Line." Uh, That's pretty good. So I've not seen very. That. I mean, I'm a Tuesday Weld fan. I mean, you yeah. kind of have to be a Tuesday Weld fan. Yeah, and she's wonderful I in never that. Saw if you, it. you the out. Gypsy Moth is pretty good too. Yeah, but it's kind of bleak. And then he ended up being an action director in the 80s, doing things like 52 Pickup and Ronin, and then ended up going back to television, ironically, and having a lot of success yeah, there later on. Yeah, he went full circle, right. and the television movies he did are good. But I'm going to talk about what's known retrospectively as the, as the Paranoia Trilogy, uh, and talking about, you know, when I, when I teach film, ta- I always talk about, you know, it's any good teacher to help form influences content. And yes, the stories of the three films I'm talking about, um, The Manchurian Candidate, Seven Days in May, and Seconds, are all, you know, paranoid-themed films, but it's not just the script, it's not just the story, it's the way it's shot. And what's fascinating to me about um, about Manchurian Candidate, well, first of all, it's it's like the Hitchcock story. Last, last episode, we talked about what made us film lovers, and I talked about how the reissue of Vertigo in 83, which hadn't been seen on a big screen in a while, uh, sort of was a revelation to me. Do you guys remember back in 88... That uh, they that Sinatra had uh, hung on to the rights from Manchurian. This is totally not true. I know. <laughs> no, everyone thought it was about Kennedy, yeah. but no. but no, it was totally. It was about money. It was about. But it he, wasn't. He didn't even hold on to them. He he made it sound when he re-released it as if Manchurian Candidate hadn't been around at all, and that is not true. It's not true. I saw it way before '88. I saw it at least three on times. on a big screen though. Yes. Ah. I saw it at the uh, when I was working in, in I was a intern in college uh, on Capitol Hill, and I saw it at the American Film Institute. All right, but oh, but it being the theatrical screening. As far as theatrical, I could have I could have ordered it for United Artists through United Artists for college. Nobody else on my committee had ever heard of it, so I couldn't. 
Also, it had been on television several times. It had been yeah. on CBS. In the 70s. And, and the 60s. Yeah, well, been, first, yeah, it was first on in the 60s. Yeah. What, I think maybe two or three years after it came right. out. Right. And then they showed it again in 19... I think 74 and right. I remember it distinctly because Saturday night. it was on Saturday night and I was I was in my room in college and I had to finish this painting and it's like I'm not going out at all this weekend I'm staying in my apartment you know uh, room or whatever and I saw that it was on I was like oh good there's a good movie I've never seen this before I've heard about it or whatever and you know I'm working on my painting but about halfway through I was no longer working on my painting I was to the TV. You were relaxing by playing a little solitaire, weren't you? <laughs> All right. But, but when it was re-released in 88, Sinatra made it sound like... Yeah. He had withheld that it hadn't been seen at all, right? And I was like, "I've seen it four times." And you know, he suggested that it had been pulled because he was very close friends with Jack Kennedy, and that, that was a, no, it was not that at all. I, I well, had, not, that, I had never. He was. Yeah, they had soured though a little bit. <laughs> and also, the fact is, also remains, the Manchurian Candidate was not a successful film. No, it was a terrible failure. Yeah. That's why. That's why the the whole split of the money was really at the real root of its not being theatrically re-released. You couldn't get it on VHS for years. That right. was true. Yes. And I, you know, so I saw it in '88 for the first time, and I was completely blown away by it. Oh, I was yeah. like, where and when yeah. did this come from? Yeah. And the question that I wanted to bring up with Frankenheimer in these three films, especially, is. Why, and I would ask this of my um, of my film students: is why choose to make these films in black and white? In fact, I, I had to remember, you know, because you think you see like when when Josie, his girlfriend, Lawrence Harvey's girlfriend, comes in and she's dressed as the Queen of Diamonds. I had to remind myself that that's mm -hmm. not in color. You don't see the red. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. all black and white. And it it almost why why do you think that Frankenheimer, <laughs> well, who had color at his disposal, obviously chose to make these films in black and white. But they were still going through a period where black and white was cheaper. Yeah. So you think it was an economic... It, it, it might have been. It might have been. It yeah. could have been just simply by choice, uh, which was probably true. It was, I mean, I know that in, in the 50s, they continued to make the black and white movies because it was cheaper and also because a lot of the TV networks wouldn't buy the rights to color movies because so few people had color TVs. Right. Of course. Yeah, that actually makes a ton of sense. And the same thing in the early 60s. Right. Yeah. But I, 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 I'd like to believe that, I, I could, as Michael said about of one of Wilder's films, I could not imagine any of these films in color. No. These films have to be in black and white. Although and because they did yeah. remake Manchurian Canada. Let's, oh, not, yeah. uh, <laughs> let's not even talk about that. Sorry. <laughs> the spirit of Jonathan Demme, wherever you are. Uh, yeah, that was, yeah. Okay. Anyway, we'll we'll ignore that. And um, well, got good reviews. Yeah. Well, you know, even you know, even Meryl Streep and Denzel couldn't save it. So there you go. So the themes of the three movies are fairly similar. Manchurian Candidate, of course, based on the Richard Condon novel about a a um, a plot to essentially take over the uh, American government brainwashing a soldier, brainwashing his platoon, uh, to think that he was a hero, the hero's stepfather, played by uh, the un always underrated James Gregory. Absolutely. Uh, Johnny Iceland. Yeah, excellent. All right, all right. All right. And uh, he, 
they, they come this close. And it's Angela Lansbury, who is his mother. Who I think who, gives one of the greatest performances ever in film. Oh, yeah. absolutely. 100%. So, and you know who Sinatra originally wanted? Lucille Ball. Oh, God. And uh, uh, Frankenheimer talked talked him out of it. I, I think what uh, he did was he showed rushes of All Fall Down. And that's when and, Sinatra and, realized, okay, this is our... And, this right, is and of course, it's like a Jesse Royce Landis Cary Grant yeah. thing. She's, yeah. what, three years older than Lawrence Yeah, but doesn't Harvey, matter. Lansbury no, always played older. And, and, and completely True. believable. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and yep. maybe the most evil character in all of film. I put her up there against any wicked she's, Disney stepmother. She's definitely or, up there. And you know, because the moment... Lot spoiler: The moment when you find out who his American operative is is just one of the most devastating moments in yeah. in, in American film, I think. Yeah. And you and, don't see it coming, uh, right? Absolutely. Where you do in the remake, right? Where it's it's mm. it's telegraphed. Yeah. And a fabulous ending scene where he borrows from the uh, Hitchcock's Albert Hall scene at the end of right. um, mm-hmm. of the Man Who Knew Too Much, where uh, Raymond Lawrence Harvey's character is supposed to shoot the presidential candidate so that the vice presidential nominee, his stepfather, will be swept into power, and he's cued to do it just as in uh, Man Who Knew Too Much. Right. The cue is the symbol crash. Right. Here it's when the president. Nominee says, "My my my life my life for my liberty." Right. And boom, I'm not going to say what happens at the end. But and we'll t- I'll talk a little bit about the performances. Yeah, I mean, my favorite Sinatra performance. Absolutely. Oh, oh I I would agree. Right? Absolutely. And anybody who yeah. ever says he was not that good an actor needs to see yeah. that movie. I mean, he, he's not good in a lot of things, but he's brilliant in that. And yeah. I don't really yeah, want to focus excellent. focus on the acting here, but in each of these films, Janet I think. Lee. Janet Lee is wonderful. Who has to get the Good Sport Award? Yes. Yeah. When you think yes. about it, because yeah. it's not that much of a part. It's but a she thankless brings part. It all, but yeah. but she brings so much to it. Eugenie yeah. Rose and uh, and Burt Lancaster in uh, New Depths. I think first first of all in Birdman of Alcatraz, but especially in Seven Days in oh May. Oh my God! I mean, oh, yeah. completely a, a great piece of casting, and maybe the greatest casting against type. Casting Rock Hudson in a rather serious part in seconds and I am not a Rock Hudson fan oh. in any way shape or form well, and I think he completely pulls it off I think as a dramatic a, actor I would agree with you he, right. he did have some amusing moments as a comedic yeah. actor so uh, Seven Days in May written or should I say overwritten and I'm saying this as, as a huge fan of his by Rod Serling but Serling tends to write like Chayefsky did in Network you know those it's a lot of people yelling and making speeches at each other instead of actually talking Seven Days in May though is a movie I've liked more and more over the yeah. years it's, it's definitely <laughs> it's, it's, it's aged very well I think so yeah I think yeah. I, I, it's, it's frightening how close to reality it could be in. Everyone is just, you know, casting Frederick March as the president, as the liberal president, who signs a a treaty with Russia promising denuclearization on both sides. Sound vaguely familiar? Hmm. Hmm. Yes, only you do learn that there's going to be verification. Yes. Oh, yeah. Ver- <laughs> I'd just sit Kim Jong-un down and have him watch this. I'd so. rather have Frederick March as president today. <laughs> yeah, can we, have, yeah, can we do that? I don't know. <laughs> and, and then there is Seconds, which is... Seconds is an uneven film, but the plot of Seconds... Uh, is very unusual in that it centers around one of the great, one of my favorite character actors of that era, John Randolph, yes. plays a middle-aged man who's 
successful. He's the vice president of a bank, but he's very frustrated with his life, and his daughter has grown up, and he doesn't feel a purpose anymore. He's not attracted to his wife. And this very subtle and surreptitious organization gets hold of him and offers him the chance to be reborn, to literally die, and then through plastic surgery and this extensive process, they are going to give him a second shot at life. Which is totally untrue. I've looked into that. <laughs> exactly. But uh, if anyone has, Not please, please email us if you've heard about any place where you can actually do this. This would be most helpful. Um, and when he wakes up from the surgery and from the process, he's Rock Hudson. And he's given, he, he's become a painter and they plant him in uh, a colony of other quote unquote seconds like himself right. in Malibu. And at first he's kind of, uh, finds the adjustment hard, but he eventually sort of revels in it. And the revelry gets a little out of hand and he try he breaks the company rules. He tries to go back and get in touch with the people he loved in his original life. And... To say that things don't end well <laughs> is greatly underestimating the case. I would say that the ending of Seconds is one of the dark, ten darkest endings of any yeah. American movie. I saw yes. Seconds when it came out. My yeah. sister took me and it, it shattered me, actually. I understood what was going <laughs> exactly. I'm glad I was 11, you know, but uh, it, it, it really, I do remember that ending. And... Oddly enough, I've not, I've not seen the film since. I never see see it around. I, uh, it's on, it, uh, Criterion just released it on uh, okay. a version of, which I think I'm going to get because I it's should the, get it. The the cinematographers on uh, Manchurian Candidate and Seven Days in May were both uh, TV cinematographers, mm -hmm. people th that would make who, sense. who had made made their name in the, um, Lionel Linden in uh, Manchurian Candidate and uh, Ellsworth Fredericks in Seven Days in May. So no one knows. And then, of course, James Wong Howe. Um, what, just, there's so much, though, to look at in these films. Yes. Um, first of all, the camera placement. You get cameras everywhere. There's, there's a lot of shots, especially in Seven Days in May, where the camera's where a security camera would be today. Mm -hmm. Up high, mounted high, wide angle, and it, it gives you this really creepy feeling. I'm not even sure why. Like we're watching something we shouldn't be watching, or... Um, it's 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 really interesting, and of course, in terms of camera placement, uh, James Wong Howe, although he and Frankenheimer fought a lot about how this was done, uh, really? how yeah, no, Howe thought that Frankenheimer was just being gimmicky at some points. But for example, towards the end, when Rock Hudson is being wheeled on a stretcher down a corridor, and the camera is strapped to the gurney, mm -hmm. and it, it's just it's just terrifying. And I love that. There's also, um, I don't know whether the technology got better, whether the lenses got better, or the film stock got better, but this deep focus, he's always doing the Orson Welles thing, where he's got a very yeah. sharp, you know, very intense close-up, but you can see everything in the back clearly, which is very disorienting and disturbing, and also gives you, all this, I think, gives you the sense of not having your feet firmly on the ground, which for films that are about different kinds of paranoia, actually makes a ton of sense. So lots of deep focus. One of the things I also noticed about the three is that there are screens everywhere. Everyone's always watching everyone on screen. Well, there's a magnificent shot in Manchurian Candidate where at the uh, hearing, um, it's towards the beginning where James um, 
Greg Ree is questioning. Mr. Chairman. Yeah. And <laughs> you, you can see the, uh, the witness on one, on the TV screen, you see James Gregory in the background, and then you see Lansbury watching it. Right. And it's like right. three different films, and it's like, oh my God. And is, is that the scene where then he walks out and Sinatra follows him? And yes, yes. Sen- into how the many, closet. How many senator or whatever? Yes. Like, and he keeps making up. How many numbers. communists are there? Right. Right. There are definitely 106 scout <laughs> carrying communists. And then, of course, that they settle on the ketchup was just wonderful. <laughs> yeah. 50, there are 57 card carrying communists in the. Uh, oh, no. So. Well, unlike Seven Days in May and. Um, Seconds. Well, I, I shouldn't say that seconds because I haven't seen it in forty-five years. But uh, Manchurian Candy does have some humor. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it does. Well, yes. yes. Seven S- days in May. And seconds has not. none either. Yeah. Um, no, that is not. But I do want to add one thing about Seven Days in May. It has a surprisingly good performance by Ava Gardner. Absolutely, oh, yeah. an yeah. older Ava Gardner and, and, who and, has allows herself to look a little older. And yeah. that was the one. Oh, year, yeah, she's excellent. And right. That was the one year she also did Night of the Iguana that same year, and it was like the one time where she really became got in. Actually, everybody is herself. good in Seven Days in May. I think Edmund O'Brien's a little much. I love times. him over and the he's top. He's the one who got the Oscar uh, nomination. A little, a little much. At times, or whatever. I mean, that scene in the airport, see a tall man wearing a little funny hat or whatever. And don't forget for <laughs> exactly. trivia, it is actually the film debut of John Houseman. Oh, he plays yeah. the Admiral. Yes. yes, that's right. Everybody yeah. always thought that the first time he ever acted was in the paper chase. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and and that is, and you know, getting back to the screens, there are you we when we see um Burt Lancaster as General Scott giving his big speech. You see it on a bank of screens mm-hmm. from the where the reporters are. Yeah. And then at the end, when you see President Lyman giving his speech, Frederick March, Whoa. you also see it on right. screens. People are constantly watching screens and even a little bit in seconds when they sort of give him the pitch to do this. It's done with a little promotional film and it sort of just really reminded me of Get Out. I mean, of, of when... when um, the main character in Get Out is is hypnotized and strapped to the chair and watches the film about how this whole process is going to work yeah. and yeah. you know transferring the bodies and that really I don't I don't I doubt if Jordan Peele was influenced by it but that was a very screens really important people well know. and the, the part you're referring to in Seven Days of May when he's uh, Burt Lancaster is General Scott making the speech they cut to Kirk Douglas and he's. He's watching it on uh, TV. On the screen. And that's when he decides, he listens to him, that's when he decides to contact the president's office because he's put everything together and realizes that, spoiler alert, there's a plot. They always kill <laughs> Martin Balsam, too. That's such a bad thing. But yeah. um, So that's, that's something that really stood out to me. Was uh, I, I take it Seconds was not a successful film. No. But it, was Seven Days in May? Yes. It was. I, I mean, thought, you know, thought, moderate success. Yeah, not, well, unlike The Manchurian Candidate, which, which was a dismal failure, yeah. but... You know, most of the great films that we love now were dismal failures when they opened. I mean, I always thought that's why Lansbury lost the Oscar was because no, uh, Manchurian Candidate just was not. Yeah, no one saw it. No one saw it. It was it was it was twenty five years ahead of its time. Yeah. I mean, I don't think when I saw it in eighty eight, I don't I don't think we'd caught up to it. I think we're just about there mm, now. Yeah. Mm. Uh, maybe um, so and in terms of how the camera moves lots of corridors lots of hallways yep. and alleyways very Kubrick like you know that yes. same sort of smooth rolling and he well, even does well and remember the opening of Seconds in Grand Central Station where he does the thing that Spike Lee did in his early films where it looks like someone's not walking but floating 
the cameras yeah. over their shoulder yeah. and like in Malcolm X remember when he's headed to the Audubon ballroom yeah. there's it, it's it's really it, everything is done well, that also is Scorsese yeah that is true everything is done to keep you off balance and knock you off your feet and uh, sort of take you away from what you're sure of which if you're making films about paranoia as I said is a wonderful thing so there's lightning fast cuts I mean think about the convention uh, the at the nomination convention at Manchurian Candidate. There's a point there where he's cutting every half a second, yep. and you see the same thing at the very beginning of Seven Days in May with the protesters right, when some yeah. are protesting in favor of the president, some against, and yeah. they end up they fighting. Yeah. The, uh, the, the and some really um, expressionistic stuff. There's a dream sequence that he has in that. Um, the character has in seconds where the floor is like a checkered floor and it's um, it's a fisheye lens. It's like straight out of Caligari right. almost. Right. It's really odd and unexpected and upsetting somehow. I mean, that's what I love about these three films is it's not just the stories and the script and the ideas are upsetting. It's the way the film is shot. The films are shot is just very, very disturbing. Um and by the way, one thing I found out that I didn't know in doing a little bit of research, Seconds was shot as a silent film. And all the dialogue was redubbed afterwards. Really? really? Because they wanted to give James Wong Howe absolute freedom of the camera. Oh, okay. Wow. And so I would argue that maybe since the early 40s that these are the most beautiful films made in black and white in America in terms of the visual look of them. I mean, again, I used the word eidetic before. Uh, which means, it's my favorite word in the English language, meaning almost hyper-real, realer than real, sharp as, as a Dali painting or sharp as you see images in a dream, like sharper than they are in real life. That's interesting that they did it that way because uh, James Wong Howe was making movies since the 20s. Yeah. He's and been around for a long time. So maybe there is that kind of silent expressionist influence yeah. happening there and uh, I again great work from the actors but I think what makes it wasn't Will Gear Will Gear was the doctor and right? of course that's the genius yeah. of seconds that no one asks if this is such a wonderful process, why is an old man, man the head of the company, it. right? It's just like, that's your first... I was sitting there, it's like, wait, why Why didn't he go through the process if it's so wonderful? Right. And right. that's your first hint that becoming a second might not be all it's cracked up to be. So I, I just love the feeling of these films. As, uh, as John pointed out, this was the uh, seconds, 66, was the last year that the Oscars gave out a separate award for black and white cinematography, won by Haskell Wexler. I mean, I, deservedly so. But there's something about the black and white and the deep focus that, uh, and the editing, it just gives you this wonderfully off-kilter sense of of paranoia, of things happening that you don't understand that are beyond your control, forces operating, yeah. you know, and that sort of, the, whether it's the communists and the takeover in Manchurian, whether it's the military in uh, Seven Days in May, or this evil, interesting company in Seconds, right. that there are forces beyond your control. And the filmmaking style is a visual correlative to that. And I think the three of them, I again, Frankenheimer's career just kind of went up in smoke, essentially, but those three films, again, referred to generally as the Paranoia Trilogy, are well worth seeing if you have an especially Seconds, which is the least well-known of the three, yes. and possibly the most interesting of the three, although Manchurian is just about perfect, oh. too. And I Seven Days in May, I'm with you, John. Really Seven Days in May is just about yeah, perfect also. Yeah, I can't criticize either. Uh, Manchurian Candidate occasionally Lawrence Harvey, 
is a bit much. There are a couple of scenes where you like kind of went, God, you are a jerk. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's, that's, that's part what, of the theme of the movie, yeah, too, right. that he's unbelievably... Raymond Shaw is the kindest, lovely... <laughs> yeah, and he's an incredibly unlikable person or whatever, and it's just... Uh, lo- lovely film, and please ignore the Demi. I love Jonathan Demi early on as a director, but please ignore that yeah. uh, that remake. So, yeah. and I was also thinking. So, we, I was speculating that this period of really extra sharp, eidetic black and white begins with uh, McKendrick's Sweet Smell of Success in '57. But I might also throw in Kubrick's first two black and white films, uh, The Killing well, and Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory, yeah, the photography of Paths of Glory. Is oh my gorgeous. God, stunning, stunning! Gorgeous. The sharpness, yeah. the it just like leaps out of you. It's, it's almost a 3D and so we'll use that as a clever segue. No, not, only, not only that, but it's uh, the uh, the battle scenes in Pads of Glory. I, I'm sure that, that Kubrick did a lot of research. That's He loved researching everything. I'm sure he looked at hundreds of photos of, of World War I, you know, battle yeah. and everything. Because it, it just, it's, it's so real. So real, incredible. I love both of those films. But yeah. are you talking about those, or you're moving? On, you're no. Moving I, ahead? I'm only. I mostly because then he did Lolita, which I think is a good movie. Right. We're not counting Spartacus, really. No. 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 no it's, it's not color. really. It's right. not it's, really his movie. Right. It's, it was, you see some Kubrick touches. Was in Anthony it. Mann? Anthony Mann, right? Yeah. No, I think he had a. I think he got sick or had a heart I, attack. I, I, thought, I thought. I thought. Uh, I don't know. And Douglas basically said, "You owe. You owe me to Kubrick. You owe me one." For you know, right. putting you on the map with Paths of Glory, so right. direct this That's movie right. for me. Yeah, but um, I think Lolita is about as good as it could have been given the time it was made. Yes, because they had to change the age. Um, there's some things that had to be changed. The Claire Quilty character was made much bigger than in the book. Um, I think James Mason is brilliant. Oh, yeah. in it. oh fantastic! My brilliant. favorite performance of his. I think he's brilliant in it. Um, and what's really interesting is that the movie that was made later by Adrian Lin, where it's very faithful to the book, is I don't think it's as good. No, I completely, no, I completely agree. Yeah. So, but I'd like to focus on Doctor Strangelove. Okay. The thing that still absolutely amazes me about Doctor Strangelove is you have to remember when it was made. It was just incredibly audacious to make this movie. When it was released, it was only 15 months after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hmm. And to make a satire out of the possibility of a nuclear holocaust is just um, abso- did, absolutely crazy. We were talking about Lamette before. Did it come out after or before? Before. Ah, it came Fail out safe. before, but apparently something happened where they thought maybe Failsafe was going to come out before, but it didn't. The original release of Strangelove was supposed to be around the time of the Kennedy assassination. The premiere was going to be November 22nd. You're kidding. Oh my God. One to grow on, kids. Did not know that. They had to delay it. In fact, there is... Several months. There was a scene, there was a scene at the end of the movie that was cut. Kubrick said that it was cut because he thought it just didn't work. The pie fight? Yeah, there was a big pie fighting scene that they filmed uh, that was going to be the last scene of the movie. Kubrick said that he cut it because it just didn't work. It became too slapstick and that people were starting to lose it and laugh and everything. 
but also there was a line in the movie that that uh, the George C. Scott character characters when uh, Peter Sellers as President Muffley gets hit with a pie in his face, and he says, "Our gallant young president has been struck down in his prime." Oh my! And, and Columbia, when they saw that, said, "You got to cut that." Scene. Do, is, it, is that scene available anywhere? Is there I access? I don't know. I've never seen I've it. I've never <coughs> seen it either. But I didn't. Uh, apparently, there is a shot in the movie where you can see the pies in the background on one on the table. Yes. Yeah. Well, you see, definitely see food. I didn't realize yeah. they were just. Pies. Yeah, no. Well, when when uh, Peter Bull is taking pictures of the yeah. uh, of yeah. the big board. Yes, the big <laughs> yes. board. Yes, but he's, Mr. President, he's going to see the big board. The big board. <laughs> and it's interesting because we bring up George C. Scott. He was not happy at all when he saw the movie. Really? Huh. No, because he didn't like doing it over the top. But and Kubrick always kept encouraging to to do more That's or whatever. And told him that, no, that's not going to be in the movie. And he said, let's just do it that way so you can loosen up or whatever. And George C. Scott went along with that. And then when he saw the movie, he was very angry. He said, you were using these these shots or whatever. And you weren't. You said you weren't going to do that or whatever. And after that, it was like, I'm never working with you again. <laughs> so, but uh, to make a satire out of the whole premise of... Nuclear Holocaust, Incredible. One, only one year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it did well. It, it, it did, did well. It, it, made, it, made, it made money when it came out. Yeah. Sure, it did better than Lolita. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think Lolita yeah. did well, too. I don't know. I think it did. I don't know. I mean, the, the, the funny thing with Lolita, this i got to mention, you do know about the script. No. That Nabokov wrote the script? Yeah. He wrote, he's credited with the script, yeah. and apparently... Not a single word. Kubrick found it totally uh, unfilmable, yeah. and he, he just basically rewrote it, but he let yeah. uh, him keep the credit. In fact, right. he got nominated for an Oscar, and he didn't write a single word of the final script. Yeah, interesting, interesting. But yeah, apparently it was just un- unfilmable. But uh, what is really focused on in the movie is the whole concept of mutually assured destruction. Right, right. yeah. Matt. And, the um, and, and yes, and, and Kubrick <laughs> did a lot of research. But it doesn't work if you don't tell everybody about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he did a lot of research before. He he loved doing research, and um, I didn't know this that when they were writing it, the part of Major Kong, which was he wanted Sellers to do that, but Sellers had hurt his ankle and and couldn't do that part. Uh, originally, when they were writing it, they had John Wayne in mind. Oh, interesting. Interesting is right. And apparently, as soon as they, they offered it to him, and he turned it down immediately. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he had the Green Berets coming up a couple of yeah. years later. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I mean, Wayne sure. didn't strike me as somebody who had a sense of humor about himself. No. 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 But, they, but uh, Kubrick never told Slim Pickens it was a comedy. <laughs> yeah, but how many dramas did Slim Pickens do? Yeah, I know. I, mean, I know, but he never told him it was a comedy. He encouraged him to play it straight, as straight as Slim Pickens could that's do. That's it. Because, right. I mean, because Slim Pickens, that's what you get. In fact, uh, James Earl Jones said that when he met him and everything, he said, that's, that's him. Yeah. <laughs> he met he him is and major wearing a cowboy yeah. hat, the whole cowboy outfit, cowboy boots. That, that's how he dressed in real life. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I never really considered Slim Pickens a serious... You know, I never thought yeah. about him doing Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. But uh, 
What I realized though is when I watched it again recently was that I didn't enjoy the movie. I would really. I would still recommend it to anyone who's never seen it. I think it's an excellent film. It's beautifully made. It's. I mean, as far as satires go, it couldn't be done any better. Oh, I think it's the best sat- film but satire I, probably ever made. I found that I didn't enjoy it. Because? And I think it's because since seeing the movie many, many years ago, I have read that it is possible. Yeah. Oh, well, I remember yeah. um, uh, seeing it uh, in the early 80s uh, on a revival screen and not finding it funny, but this was like six, seven weeks after Caspar Weinberger wrote out his thing about right. a winnable ah. nuclear war, right. his uh, manifesto. Right. And I didn't, once again, like you, I didn't find it funny. I've since watched it again. and right. I think it, maybe it depends who's president. I, I don't know. Um, but there was an actual... Um, Forget, I don't know what term to use or whatever, that Eisenhower had put into action because they, it was brought up to him that what if there is some sort of attack and you're killed first, who, who will be able to give the word to retaliate? And so there were some high-ranking officers that had authority to send, you know, send uh, bombers off with, with their nuclear weapons. To protect our precious bodily fluids. Yes, that's right. All right. That's right. <laughs> Sterling Hayden. Yes, there's much sexual imagery. Oh, it's all Innuendo. Yeah. It's, it's all over the place in the movie. And the reason it's in there is because when Kubrick was doing research and met people at the Rand Corporation, which was referred to as the, the Bland, Bland Corporation, Corporation in the movie, yes. <laughs> uh, they referred to everything in, in sexual metaphors. Wow, they that's call they call really creepy. nuclear holocaust as wargasm. Okay then. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a way for them to deal to deal with it. They would make jokes and stuff like that, a gallows humor, and so we disarmed North Korea just in time. You're saying? <laughs> okay, just <laughs> okay. But it is funny because that is really the last film that Kubrick ever made, which had much of a sense of humor. I mean, most of his. Yeah, I think Eyes Wide Shut is hilarious. It just doesn't mean to be, though. <laughs> actually, I, I, I'm, I'm one of the very few people on earth who actually likes Eyes Wide Shut. I will have Shut. to fight that one out sometime. I, I like it. I don't love it, but I think it, it's it's a better movie. Than That's how I watched a movie, basically, with Eyes Wide Shut. I <laughs> and I, I think I think Nicole Kidman. I think it's one of her best performances. She is very good in it. She is. All right, but we digress. Mm-hmm. We digress. So, if you don't know the plot of Doctor Strangelove. Jack D. Ripper, General General Jack D. Ripper, played by Sterling Hayden, has sent the code in for one of his bombing groups to go ahead to start a nuclear war. And the reason is because he believes that the Russians are putting fluoride in the water and that it's damaging our precious bodily fluids. And when did he discover this uh, particular... uh... During the act of love. (laughs) During the act of physical love, Mandrake, yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And Mandrake happens to be an herb that is considered to be an aphrodisiac. Yes, that's one of the characters played by Peter Sellers. I think he's excellent as Captain Mandrake. Uh, he plays three different characters: the president, President Muffley. See, that's president my favorite of the three. Merkin Muffley. Uh, the first time I saw Strange Love on TV, I was older, like mm-hmm. 13, 14. I didn't realize that was Peter Sellers. Yes, he's made to look a little like Adlai Stevenson. Yeah. Yes, 
I did, and he has yeah. a perfect American accent. Yeah, yeah. I'd never, I, and when my mom, I remember my mom was telling me that's Peter. No, that's. Not and he didn't want to do the Major Kong role part. Cuba kept encouraging to do that, and he had to like listen to a Texas accent. And when he was ready to do it, he, that's when he injured his ankle when he was getting into the cockpit. So probably um, did it deliberately. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Sellers maybe. was not an easy person to work with. No, he was not. He was not. No. He was not. And his Doctor Strange love, which Strange love, and his they say in the movie what his original name was, or whatever. George some C. long Scott. German name. Yeah, yeah, some long German name. George C. Scott. Says. Mostly based on Henry Kissinger, right? No, <laughs> I don't know why people say that. Only no, based, It was based on Werner von Braun. I, I think Henry Kissinger the, the rocket, was based on Strange Love. Yeah. <laughs> The rocket scientist right. that America acquired from Nazi Germany. So, um, yes, General Turgidson. <laughs> Buck Turgidson. Yes. Kanan Wynn <laughs> plays Bat Guano. If that is indeed and, his real name. <laughs> and Guano happens to be the excrement of birds that's used as fertilizer. Yes. Another sexual reference. <laughs> <laughs> it's throughout the whole movie. But um, yeah, it is a, it's very interesting though how this is something I'm aware of or whatever more and more is how your reaction to a movie can evolve over years. Especially good movies. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's many good movies that I've seen the first time I saw it many years ago. I didn't care for it that much. And now it's like, wow, it's a great movie. So, and as I said, I want to emphasize, I still think Strange Love is an excellent movie. What are, what he, you know, he, of course he was in color all the way after 2001. What are some of the, 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 the shots that, or the, you know, the visual oh things that God. stand out to you, the artist person? Oh my God. Uh, one is the, the set of the war room. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Ken Adam. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. Who did all the yeah. Bond films, the yeah. villain's lairs. It, it's, you know. it's amazing. And um, people said that, when they would saw the actual set, they didn't really think much of it, but because of the way it was, it was photographed and lit, it just looks amazing on film. And it's interesting because he switches back and forth between some deep focus and some uh, long, long focus where you know you feel like the character's right there in front of you or whatever. And then there's the part with. Um, when the troops come to try to take over the base. With the handheld. The handheld yeah. or whatever, and it looks like newsreel footage. Burpleson Air Force Base. That's yes. right. That's right. Peace is our profession. You see, and you see that <laughs> sign That's throughout right. the entire movie. It's always there. Always. Amazing. One of the first shot, the first, the opening shot or whatever is after you see, you're seeing the planes is then into, at the Bland Corporation with uh, Captain Mandrake, and it's in the background. Peace is our profession. I think the uh, bombing, the bomber shots, all the scenes yeah. where they're preparing. Yes, the documentary absolutely, Michael. Feel, yep. Yeah, very it, much. It, it yeah. looks so much like a documentary. It's yes. so real. Yeah. Yeah, it's really... Uh, it's fact, I'm, not sh I'm sure if you didn't have that music in the background, I think people would not have laughed yeah. at all. Yeah. No, I would agree. Yeah, the use of the music uh, in the bombing in the bomber yeah. seats. Yeah. Oh, and and I kind Johnny, of, comes, Johnny comes marching home. Johnny comes marching home, which was originally a, a Civil War song. Right. And it's very interesting to use that song because it was originally written for people who were longing to for their loved ones to return from war, and here it's sort of yeah. inverted as kind of this 
ultra patriotic song or whatever, but at the same time inverted again. Well, and, and it's made fun of. And then that's built on in the ending, yeah. you know, which is the greatest, maybe the greatest ironic use of music ever in a film. I mean, yes. with the nuclear explosions and, you know, it right. will meet again. Yeah. Which was the World War II song. And which just apparently stunning. was Spike Milligan's idea to use that music. Really? He, was, he, worked with, he worked with Peter Sellers. He suggested that. Brilliant. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, yeah, and it, I, one almost wishes that um, that Kubrick had done at least something, although the color of 2001 and Clockwork and Shining and Barry Lyndon and, you know, everything oh, that followed yeah. are, are so beautiful. But yeah. uh, I just had the pleasure of seeing 2001 and 70 on a big screen right. over on 12th Street, and it was, you know... It's, it's the just, only way to say it. It's the slowest movie ever made, but I was riveted riveted to yeah, it you so. can't watch it on tv and it's very into just one other detail to share with you before we wrap it up is that i went with my friend who's about my age i'm in my early 50s and we were among the older people oh sure at this Kubr- i'm surprised kubrick's reputation unlike a lot of directors that we you and that the three of us love has gone up 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 i was surprised um when I went to the Bergman Festival at the Film Forum, you know, it's his centennial, how many young people there were in the audience. And I think maybe they were sent there by their film teams. Yeah, I was going to say, how many of them <laughs> liked the movies? I don't know. And I wonder how many of the young people that you saw in the audience liked 2001. I, the, the impression I got afterwards, I mean, there was a huge standing ovation oh, for really? it. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. People, okay. wow. people really see I expected a crowd that you'd see at, you know, so my wife just went to see My Fair Lady and, you know, at 50-something, 50, 50 I can't say how old she is, um, she, she was among the youngest people there. So we, I expected that kind of crowd in right. 2001, and that's not what we got. So there's, there's hope for us as a civilization yet, gentlemen. It's interesting that you say, because 2001, it is, it is a slow film. Yes, the way the way it's edited or whatever, but with purpose. But it was even the part with the apes was even longer <laughs> an original release, and that's one little part of the movie that I have a problem with. I think that part could have been cut even a little bit more. Then I think uh, we would have all ended up like Hal. <laughs> so they totally ignored our idea for having if if they were going to have Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty present the Oscar last year, they should have had Keir Delay and Hal present this year. I hear Keir Delay wasn't wasn't uh, available. Yeah, I get him. He must have been really busy hanging out with Gary Lockwood and all the other. But <laughs> it turns out it's not La La Land. Um, so I just um, final thoughts, uh, exit question, as it were. What do you love now, still, about black and white? Everything? <laughs> yeah, but, but why? Dig a little deeper. Why, no, I, why is I that? I, I may, I, Not just an old black, new films new made in black I prefer, and white. Yeah. Even as a kid, I remember being brought to movies that I couldn't understand, and I always preferred them when they were in black and white. I remember my sister taking me to Period of Adjustment, that might well. That could have been because I'm assuming you had a black and white TV. Yes. It could have been you just made you feel more comfortable. Maybe that's what you were used to seeing. Mm-hmm. So it made you feel more comfortable when you saw black and white. Although I, I also color a lot cartoons. of movies. A lot of movies, especially at that time, still the color was not used well, and they mm-hmm. just looked right. gross. Spe- the '60s, yes, especially absolutely yeah. right. There. It was like, oh, we're going to do color, so let's make sure we use a lot of color. And then my favorite Woody Allen movie is Manhattan. Yeah, and, I, and 
beautifully, yeah, beautifully shot. Yeah, the, the velvety. That's the. I know. I know. There's no hashtag. Funny. Me too. It's funny how, <laughs> even though it's just black and white, but there's so many variations of the black and white. So many different kinds of film that was used for black and white, and also. You know, using deep focus sometimes. I mean, Kane is Kane. the the best example. Um, and then, but even but a cheap film like uh, the Big Combo, you know, the Joseph Lewis film. You, know, you guys ever seen that with the fog mm. at the end? And oh my God! I'm familiar it, with that. I mean, this film was made for about three bucks, yeah. and just the or Detour or those great noir gun crazy, those yeah. great noir films mm-hmm. of the uh, of the late forties, yeah. early fifties, and I just love that look. For me, it's just it's it's one more thing that reminds me of meta movie. It mm-hmm. it's something that that is separated from reality. We don't most of us don't right. see the world in black and white, right. and so it, it it immerses me more than the experience. Uh, of of it not being my life. Yeah. Mm. Does yeah, that make yeah. sense? Yes. I know. Although there are some color movies that obviously are not real looking or whatever. Yeah. But oh, the sure. color is used beautifully. No, but like I, in Days of Heaven or something like I that. I have never though, seen yeah. a black and white movie where I thought, gee, I wish this was in color. That's a really good point, Mike. I read, well, uh, uh, Frankenheimer of the Train. I saw that movie when it came out in the theater and I saw it with, with family. Uh, I can't remember why we decided that was the movie we were going to go see. But I remember my parents afterwards saying, gee, why'd they make this in black and white? And I, being an annoying child at the time, said, I liked it in black and white. <laughs> Interesting. But I do a lot of people I know when it came out were wondering, why was it made in black and white? Because, gee, there would have been all this stuff in color that would have been really interesting. And, and there was the, the scenes with where they're getting to the countryside and the mountains and everything. Well, and I, but I assume that in the time that we're talking about, say 57 to 66, that it was an economic decision, as you said before. Uh, probably. Well, no. Well, no, no, but, no, but I think for the I'm train, sure Psycho was, right? Oh, yeah. Psycho definitely was, because Hitchcock wanted to show people you could make a good movie on a low budget. He used a, a TV crew. Right, right. But now, something like The Longest Day... That had to have had a high budget, and yet yeah. it was oh my shot God. in black yeah. and white. But I think I mean, also some of those choices, <laughs> I think sometimes those choices were done too, like, oh, let's do black and white. It will look realer because people were used to seeing World War II yeah. footage in black and white. Interesting. But that's not a movie I'd want to see in color either, so. No. No, that's a, yeah. but that, that's a question for your, our, our listeners to think about. Are there any black and white films that you've seen that you'd rather see in color and vice versa? Any color films that you've seen that might be better I've in black and white? I've seen films. Actually, I just saw one that I, I liked it very, very much, uh, First Reformed. Oh, I'm dying to see the Schrader film. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's quite good. But I think I might have liked it even better if it were in black and white. Because it is such a... Because it has a Brisson feel to yeah. it, right? Yeah. Well, it's Winter Light, almost. It's, it's oh. almost a remake of Winter Light, not quite. Mm. But it's, it's, it's... Which I like a lot. Yeah, me too. Bergman, and, for those who don't know. Yep. <laughs> uh, and uh, also, uh, uh, he had in mind Diary of a Country Priest. Yes, and and also pickpocket too. Right. You had that feel that uh, I I can't wait to see it. I'm so but excited. But I do recommend that film. It's either that or the Mister Rogers documentary first. I recommend. <laughs> really? You guys are a little older than I am. I grew up on Mister Rogers. He 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 was a huge help to me. I don't get it. <laughs> I'll explain oh, to you. Something. Well, no, we're we're a little too old yes. to uh, understand 
Mr. Rogers. You're right. Probably, Me- I think you're Remember, guys, I was cusp. four when Sesame Street came on, so yeah. I was yeah. the sweet no, no, spot. No, no, no. Almost everybody from like your age group and younger or whatever, very, uh, Mr. Rogers was a really important thing when they were really, really young or whatever. And and also, I, Mr. Rogers was, was a great person. Great guy. Was he? In real life and otherwise. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So to sum up, we have been focusing on, uh, you know, it, it's films... In the, when, when we talk about films in the 60s, in the early 60s, our minds tend to drift towards the European and, and Asian. But we've tried to make a case here for the uh, black and white American films of older directors still working at peak like Billy Wilder, of newer, of newer directors like John Frankenheimer and Sidney Lumet and Arthur Penn coming out of television and doing some really exciting stuff in that period, although except for Lumet, the, those, that did not last. And of course, Kubrick working in black and white before the opulent color of everything that came afterwards. So, and James Wong Howe is our hero today, right? Because yeah. it, it really begins and ends with him. There's and, a and, really interesting backstory about James Wong Howe. Shoot, Glenn with that because um, he had married someone who was white white that's right and interracial marriage was illegal in California at the time they were married so they had to to not cause trouble because also James Wong Hao had enough trouble because he was Asian to begin with she didn't want to cause more trouble for him as far as getting work and everything um they lived in the same building in separate apartments. Wow. Really? Yeah. I wish I could find that unbelievable, but I don't. Yeah. Sad. All right. Well, the last thing I'm going to say is... And, and I, eventually I, she moved to Mexico uh, for a while because I think it had something to do when the blacklist started. Wow. Because she had ties to someone who was a communist. Mm-hmm. And she she didn't she didn't want to do anything that might ruin his career. Good times, good times. Um, so uh, we will conclude on that note. Although I want to just get a little. I'm not chilling for Criterion or anything. But if you happen to have some money lying around, the you know the Dietrich von Sternberg box is coming out ah. next month. All seven Talk of about those. Black and white. All seven. Beautiful of, black and white. That's what made me think of it. And if you want to see black and white cinematography at its best, uh, check if if you can swing it. Check that one out. Vintage Sand, as always, is a five nines and a four production, uh, produced and edited by the fabulous Melissa Cabot. Gabby designed our logo. Thank you, Gabby, out there. Thank you to Mama Sue and Alexa for the use of the hall. As always, we will be back with episode three soon enough. And now that episode two is over, why not pass the time by playing a little solitaire? <laughs>